0: And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The Lord said to Moses, "'Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, "'and I will write on the tablets "'the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. "'Be ready by the morning "'and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai "'and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. "'No one shall come up with you "'and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. "'Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain.' So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of our God. You may have a seat.
1: Can you imagine standing before a bush that's on fire, but it's it's not being consumed? And you you walk closer to see this strange sight, and you feel the heat. You hear it crackling. You smell the smoke. It's not being burned up. And all of a sudden, a voice comes out of the flames, and it's unmistakable. It is no other than the voice of the living God. Can you imagine seeing not one Two or three, but ten miraculous wonders of God's almighty power where He turns the Nile River into blood. Not red water, but blood. You see it. You smell it. You hear the sludge of it as it carries down. Or the sound of the buzzing of the gnats and the flies, the ribbiting of the frogs. You see the boils on people. The day turns to pitch darkness you see all of these things and then can you imagine you see this this massive pillar of fire and cloud that goes before you and you know you're supposed to follow it as the people follow you and all of a sudden it goes behind you like a massive wall protecting you from your enemies the egyptians who would just as soon kill you as capture you and then you feel this wind this mighty rush of wind You hear it coming, and it blows the water, and it sprays your face with it, and you smell the salt, and you see the fish, and these towering walls of water of the Red Sea are on both sides. And the ground is dry, and you walk on, and you're crunching under your feet seaweed that was just hours before, wet and soggy. And come to the other side, and it comes smashing down again, and it's like a roaring thunder as it destroys your enemies. Can you imagine... Standing on Mount Sinai as it shakes, and you're doing everything you can just to stay upright. And you see the flashing of lightning and the and the thunder is deafening to your ears, you see the smoke and the fire, and it's burning your nostrils, and God invites you to come in and He speaks to you out of this. Can you imagine all of that? And then can you imagine going to God and say, Okay, now can you show me your glory? It's like what have I just done for you? Was that not enough? Was that not enough, Moses? He asked God in Exodus 33, 18, Please show me your glory. But four times explicitly up to this point in the book of Exodus, it says that God showed them that they saw His glory. Some visible manifestation, some outward sign or representation of God's glory. Why does he feel the need to ask for it again? Why does he need to feel the, the, what does he feel the need to ask for maybe more of it? It's the same reason we need it weak faith. Weakened faith. Moses' faith, faith was weakened by the difficult trials of life, by the painful experiences of this world, by the tempting allurements from the enemy the besetting sins of his people. His faith was weakened by the mind-dulling, heart-numbing daily responsibilities of life. By the darkness that seemed all around and the fearful unknown of the future. He had Pharaoh's reluctance in Egypt after every plague. Sure, but no. He had the ungrateful people when they started to suffer. When he's trying to rescue them, they hate him for it. He has the Egyptian army who let them go and then pursue them. And they go out into the wilderness when they're free from them and they have no water and then bitter water and then no water again and no food. God has to provide miraculously because they're just not around. He has His arms growing tired as He holds them up in prayer for His people just to win a battle. Then He hears the ten words of God, the ten commandments, and they seem overwhelmingly hard. Indeed, they proved to be too much because Israel, when he's up on the mountain, they sin by creating a golden calf and bowing down to it. And so God pronounces judgment on his people. So, making laughing stock of all of them, Moses has to mediate before God just so that he will relent from this disaster upon them. And he has to beg and beg and plead for God to give them blessed, his pre- blessed presence among them. And then finally, God grants his request, and we find ourselves in Exodus 33:17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. You want me to go with you? You want me to be your God and you be my people? And you want me to not destroy you even though you are a stiff-necked people? Okay, I'll do it. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. And it's at this point that Moses asked, God, please show me your glory. You said that you will be gracious to us. You said that you will go with us. And I need some evidence. My faith is weak, and I need it renewed. I need a sign, some reassurance that you will indeed go with us and be for us and not destroy us. Because just a mo- uh, chapter earlier, he says, if I go up, to, if up with you only for a moment, I would destroy you. <clears throat> After all, Moses had already had some outward, visible manifestation of God's glory before the exodus some sign of God's glory or at least His, his awesome power and his, his commitment to them during the Exodus and after the Exodus and before and during after the covenant was given and the Ten Commandments were delivered. And so now He says this is a new moment. It's a new phase of our history, God. You've just threatened to wipe them out completely. You say you're going to go with us. I need something more than that. I need to behold Your glory to strengthen His faith. Moses needed to behold the glory of God so that his faith would be renewed. That's what we need. We need the same thing. This is what all weak faith needs. To behold the glory of God. Our faith is weakened just like Moses. There is darkness. There is difficulty. There is temptation. And there is the... The sins of ours and others around us, there is the daily pressures and anxieties and responsibilities. There is pain, there is suffering, there is challenge, there are distractions, galore. And we know it. Deep down we know that our faith is often weakened. We feel it. We feel this with a sense this desperate need for God to strengthen our faith. And even sometimes we don't feel it. It's because we are trusting, but just not trusting in God. We're relying on ourselves because we're busy with everything we got to do, and we're just going after it and do it, and we got to do this and do that, and we're relying on ourselves and not on Him, and we don't realize that our faith toward God is weakening. It's being atrophied. It's weakened. This world is just not a suitable place for a life of faith. Faith in God, anyway. It's not conducive to living a life where we're constantly depending upon God. Opposition is everywhere. Difficulty and distraction are around every corner. And I'm not just saying this because well, it fits with this message here. I know this. I've talked to some of you this week and I know it's difficult. There there are things in your life they come and it, it threatens, it shakens, it shakes your faith. And, and listen, it's not just by the trials that your faith grows. That's never just it. It's by the trials and then through them when you behold the glory of God in them. That's when your faith is renewed. I know what it's like to be distracted. This past week, I've just struggled with my own heart just of, God, why is it that I, I, I can just live and go and, and do and be what I, what I think I'm supposed to be doing and being and yet, I'm not joyfully, sincerely living in constant dependence upon Him. Not actively so. For the discouraged and for the hurting, a weak faith means that we lack the power to joyfully and sincerely worship God in His glory. For the distracted and the self-reliant, we lack the power in our faith to humbly bow before God in earnest prayer. Sometimes we don't even think we need it. For the doubting and the scared, our weak faith means we lack the ability to rest. To rest with peace and with hope in the darkness of this world. And for those who are lukewarm and spiritually sluggish, we lack the ability to passionately pursue God and to find Him and to believe that He's worth it. We are weak in faith. And for that, we need our faith renewed. And this is why Moses cries out, God, please show me Your glory. So whether your faith is, is weakened this morning by the difficulties of life or the distractions of this world or some other darkness that maybe you don't even see it or maybe weak, your faith is strong this morning, it still needs to be renewed by the beholding the glory of God. But here now is the pivotal switch in this entire message. Hear me. We behold the glory of God primarily in His Word. We behold the glory of God primarily by what He proclaims in this book. Faith is renewed. It's reassured. It's reinvigorated within us by the proclamation of our glorious God. This is the heart of the message. Weak faith needs to behold the glory of God in His Word. There is no substitute for it. Weak faith needs to behold the glory of God in His Word. If Exodus 33, 17 and 18 show us Moses' request and therefore our need, that we have weak faith and need to behold the glory of God, then the middle section is massive, uh, a section right here of Exodus 33, 19 through 34, 7 show us God's response to Moses' request. And it shows us the focus of our need. It shows us our focus because it, it, it's where God responds by showing Moses what his focus should be. Moses asks in Exodus 33, 18, God, please show me your glory. And he responds with a, sure, but... He says, yes, I'll do that, but... And he gives him a clarifying caveat. explanation here look at verse 19 show me your glory and he said I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord so Moses asked to see his glory and he says I'll make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name these are all synonyms God's glory and his all his goodness and his name are the same but you notice what's different he asked to see God's glory and he says Instead, I'll make my glory just pass before you. And when something passes before you, depending on how quickly, you maybe don't see anything or very little. And then he says, I will proclaim my name. That has proclaimed my glory to you. And when something's proclaimed, you don't see anything, you just hear it. So I think here in this section, God is not just giving a clarifying explanation to Moses. I think he's giving a gentle rebuke. He's correcting Moses' focus. He asked to see his glory. Look at verse 20. Exodus thirty-three twenty. 20. God, please show me your glory, but, he said, you cannot see my face. Another synonym for glory. For man shall not see me and live. Who God is, that is his glory. It's all of his excellence. It's all of his, his magnificence and his majesty and his perfections and his greatness and his absolute worth. That's what it means that, we, that God is glorious. His absolute worth. He's got this weighty, heavy wonder about him. He's infinitely important. This is his glory. And he says, this is who I am. And, and you, you see my glory if you see my face. You see an unfiltered view of the visible representation of my divine essence. And he says, Moses, you can't do that. You are a sinful creature. For you to look at that even for a moment, you would be consumed. So no, man cannot see my glory, my face, and live. Verse 21, the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock up in the Mount Sinai. While my glory passes by, while my goodness, while my face, while I pass by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I'll hide you in a crevice and I will cover you. Literally, I will shield you with my hand until I have passed by so you're not destroyed. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face, that is my glory, shall not be seen many scholars think, and I agree, that this phrase, you shall see my back, is a Hebrew idiom or a figure of speech, which is saying that when you see just the back of somebody, you don't really see them. You don't see their face. You don't see their glory. And so it's really not like seeing anything at all. It's just enough of evidence to know that the God who was speaking to you is, this, is here and he is Yahweh, but you shall not see my glory. <clears throat> so that begs the question. If he says, please show me your glory, and God says, yes, but, well, how will he behold God's glory if he can't see it? It really isn't by the seeing, but by the hearing. Look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 34. Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed. Notice, he proclaimed. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. And he tells him who he is. He's proclaiming His glory so that he hears it. Moses is meant to behold the glory of the Lord, not through the gate of the eye, but through the gate of the ear. He's to hear. Well, What does he hear? What does God proclaim? What does He reveal about Himself? How, what does He behold when He beholds the glory of God in His proclamation? Verse 6. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the glory of God. Moses has weak faith. It's been weakened by everything that's happened in his life recently. And the Lord seeks to renew Moses' faith, to strengthen it by reassuring him that he is the God who will go with them and not destroy them, even though they are a stiff-necked people. He will take them all the way to the promised land and He will bless them. What evidence can you give me of this, God? Can you? I behold your glory? Sure, this is who I am. I am Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. I am patient with you. I am patient with this people, Moses. And I am bounding. I love this. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This word for steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. And it refers not just to a kind of emotional love, but a covenant commitment of loyal kindness. It's His faithfulness. But He doesn't just say He has love or steadfast love. He says He's abounding in it. It's an abundance. And then He adds, I'm also abundant in faithfulness. If i said I will go with you, Moses, trust me. I, I'm, I am true to my word. You can trust me. I'm faithful. Abounding in faithfulness. And then he adds to it, he's keeping steadfast love. Literally, he's guarding his steadfast love. Guarding it from what? From the difficulties of life, from the distractions of this world, from the darkness all around, from their own sinfulness. From them. He's guarding his own steadfast love from their stiff-necked, rebellious foolishness. He's guarding it for thousands. Literally, I think it is thousands of generations. Such that what I do for you, my covenant people today will echo for a thousand generations, which means nearly, if not, forever. We are still benefiting from God's covenant kindness to the people of Israel that day. He is the God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. No matter what word you want to use for your rebellion, for your wickedness, God says, I will forgive the people, my people, Moses, because this is who I am. This is my glory. He doesn't proclaim to him. He could have. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God who is omniscient and knows everything. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God who is omnipotent and can do all His holy will, sovereign and omnipotent power. But He doesn't. He could say, He could have proclaimed to him, Moses, I am the God who is omnipresent I am the God who is independent and self-sufficient. I am the God who is perfect in wisdom and in beauty and, and in uh, unity and everything, a billion other things he could have told him. All would be contributing to this factor of God being glorious. But he focuses this proclamation of his glory on his grace, on his sovereign goodness, his covenant kindness, and his faithful, merciful grace. Why? Reasons. One, because Moses needed that. His faith was weak and God, I, will you really be kind to us all the way to the promised land? Moses, Moses, this is who I am. I am a God of faithful, merciful grace. Do you doubt that? Do you doubt that He will be kind to you tomorrow when you wake up? He is sovereign but he is good. He is patient and he is gentle and he is merciful and gracious and he is faithful in it all. This is who he is. The second reason why I think he makes this the heartbeat of his message, of the proclamation of beholding his glory is because this is not just good for Moses. This is how he wants all people to know him. God gets glory in his wrath. God gets glory in His justice. God gives glory in His wisdom and His creativity and everything else that He is. But primarily, He wants to highlight throughout the all of Scripture, everything else is just supporting and building up the glory of His grace. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1. All that God has been doing throughout the history of redemption, culminating in Jesus Christ, is for the praise of the glory of His grace. That's the supreme highlight, the supreme revelation of the glory of God. That's who he is, and that's how he wants us to know him. But he wants us to hear this, not see some visible manifestation of it. Notice that Moses does not record one tiny detail of what he saw. God, show me your glory. And then he says nothing about what he saw. That's either because he didn't see anything or because it didn't matter. Because the heart of the proclamation, the centerpiece of beholding God's glory, was what he heard in the Word of God. We must remember that weak faith needs to behold the glory of God in His Word. The Word of God reveals the glory of God to strengthen our faith in God. That's how it works. And so we could go the reverse and say, with weak faith then we need need to see the glory of God. And for that we need to read and hear the Word of God. For when the Bible is read and studied and heard proclaimed faithfully, then we are beholding God Himself in His sovereign goodness, in His covenant kindness, and in His faithful, merciful grace. All through what He has said. And then our faith is renewed. Our faith is reassured, it's reinvigorated when we take in the precious promises of this book. When we take in and receive the sobering warnings of the Bible, the comforting encouragements of Scripture, the serious commands of God's Word, the practical wisdom that He lays out for us, and the heavenly doctrine that He shows us, all reveals the glory of God. That's how we see Him. Oh, there's a mystery to it, but it's not mystical. You can understand it. You read this and God says, I'm showing you Me, My glory. Our understanding is made clear, it's made correct, and it's made sure primarily through taking in the Word of God. Our faith is strengthened most often and most effectively through the proclamation of this Word. So yes, our daily experiences of God's sovereign goodness and grace in our lives are wonderful, but they're not enough. Do you realize you have been experiencing God's grace and His goodness all week long? How many of them have you failed to bow down and worship him for? It's this word that helps us to see them. We need the word of God because the spirit of God reveals the glory of God through the word of God. And yet, and yet, what we see with our eyes, what we feel, what we taste and smell and hear, this often seems more real to us than what we read in this book we got to be honest. That's, it often feels that way, doesn't it? And so we long for some vision to see. We long for some experience to behold some, something that will tingle our senses to make us feel more alive, to make us feel like this is more real, to make us feel like it's more helpful to us. But that should not be our focus. It really shouldn't. These kinds of sensational and mystical and subjective things are so passing. Just like God passed before Moses, these are passing they're here and then they're gone. And they're precarious. They're shaky and fleeting and unstable such that they're, they're like a sugar rush. They, they, don't, they don't really give you health. They don't really give you stability and true spiritual energy in life. Not really. We need something more. More substantial. More sure and solid. We need something with power and longer lasting power. I love what Jesus says in Luke 16. When he tells of a rich man who died and a poor man, Lazarus, who died. The rich man went to hell and he was given sight to see something of of heaven where Lazarus was next to Abraham. And he cries out, the the rich man does, would you send Lazarus come down to just put some cold water, just one drop on my tongue? And he says, no, that's not how it works. There is an unbreachable chasm between us and you. Your, Your fate is sealed. Okay, then fine, send send him back to my brothers who are still on earth and warn them of this terrible place of torment. And he says, no need. Verse 29, Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead, even if they see them with their own eyes. Do you hear what he's doing? It's an argument of greater to the lesser. If if they won't hear the Bible, if they won't hear from God's word and be convinced, then down here just seeing somebody risen from the dead ain't going to do it either. The word of God is powerful like a double-edged sword. The spirit of God wields the word of God. We do, in, we do indeed need to behold the glory of God, but we do not need it in some outward, visible sign or manifestation, some mystical, sensational experience. No, weak faith needs to behold the glory of the Lord in His Word. In His Word. If one argues, well, okay, from Exodus 34, though, what happened was Moses audibly heard God's voice in his ears. That's a sense, right? This is sensational. And if I heard the voice of God booming from heaven, then it would reassure my faith too. I'd be a for the rest of my life, never doubting or questioning anything ever again. The problem is, that's not true. It is just not true. There have been people before who audibly heard the voice of God and they explained it away. John 12, 28 and 29. Oh, I guess that's just thunder. There are, there are others who heard God audibly speak to them, later only to say, That what we have here is more sure. Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration and it said they saw the glory of Jesus shining in all His bright, brilliant light. And they heard audibly the voice of God, the Father, speaking out of the cloud to their own ears and they said black ink on white pages is more stable than that. It's more sure. This is a more sure word than that. It is only in the Word of God that we can behold the glory of God in such a way that our faith is strengthened in God. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Well, if Exodus 33, 17 and 18 shows us Moses' request and our need, and 33, 19 to 34, 7 shows us God's response and our focus, what it should be, then these last two verses, 34, 8, and 9, show us Moses' response in our application. Whether your faith is weakened by the difficulties of life or by the distractions of this world, or even if your faith is strong, yes, strong faith needs to behold the glory of God in His Word too. There are four things I'm going to tell you to do. Number one, don't settle for the cheap and temporary fading glory of this world. Don't settle for the cheap, fading glory that is all around us and, and, and is clamoring at us. I was reading this morning in, a, in one of the Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision. It says, God, there is such a ch- charming face from this world. A beguiling spirit all around me. Give me faith. that I can examine it and reject it when it's false. Don't settle for the cheap and fading glory of this world. Moses in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, 18, he gets a rebuke. But it's only a slight gentle rebuke because he doesn't say, God, show me the glory of, of me or the glory of the kingdoms around me or the glory of the Israelite army. He says, God, show me your glory, not the glory of some other false God around me. He's asking to see God's glory. Matthew 4, Satan takes Jesus out in the wilderness and he lifts him up high and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory, it says. And Jesus says, I ain't impressed. I've seen the glory of God. Don't settle for the cheap, fading glory of this world. The grass withers and the flower falls. That's us. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. We are temporary. We are passing away along with this world. You know, I think it's just a general statement is true. Our greatest need at any given moment is our greatest solution to our greatest problem. You can plug that anywhere. I think it's true. Our greatest need is the greatest solution to our greatest problem. Whatever our problem is at that moment, what do we need most? Whatever solves that problem, right? Beloved, our greatest problem is not obscurity. So we don't need fame. We don't need popularity. We don't need prestige. We don't need approval from other people. Don't seek that glory. Our greatest problem is not boredom. We don't need entertainment. Our greatest need is not excitement and adventure and experiences. Our greatest problem is our sinfulness. And we have a holy God. We are a stiff necked. And if he was with us for a moment, he would consume us. So our greatest need is for God to behold his glory in us and among us and for us, where he is showing his sovereign goodness and his covenant kindness. And His faithful, merciful grace. Our greatest need is God to be gracious to us. But you can't separate that from our need to trust Him for it. Imagine, you jump out of an airplane and you are speeding towards earth. Your greatest problem is with the ground or gravity, whatever you want to say. And so you say, my greatest need then is a parachute, right? But you can't separate the need for the parachute with from the need for the ability to pull the ripcord. If you have the parachute on your back, but you, your arms are cuffed behind you, and you smash into the ground with just a heavier weight on your back, you need both, the parachute and the ability to pull it, right? We need God to be gracious to us, and we must trust Him for it. We need both. And so we need our faith sustained. We need it renewed. We need it strengthened over and over again. So don't settle for the cheap fading glory of this world but instead focus your faith on Jesus Christ. Focus your faith on Him because He is the radiance of the glory of God. Moses asked to behold the glory of God and Isaiah said that he saw God's glory because he saw it in a, in a vision. That is, he saw it in a prophetic vision that the Christ would come. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. Focus your faith on Jesus. To behold the glory of God, look at Jesus. And say, okay, well then show me Jesus. Indeed. Indeed, but how? Third point, don't idolize subjective feelings. Don't seek after sensational experiences, trusting in them to show you the glory of God in Christ and to strengthen your faith in Him. They won't do it, not really. How shaky is your faith if you only feel that it's strong, if it's only strong when you feel up high on a, an emotional, sensational, experiential mountaintop? Then you have to wait for these. And then it starts to plummet. And then you have to wait for another one. And then it'll plummet. If it's far and few between, or if you never get one of those again, will you not trust Him? Is your faith going to be weak? You need to behold the glory of God, not in these sense experiences. You need to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as you, number four, read His Word. Study His Word. Memorize His Word. Sing His Word. Listen to the Word of God proclaimed and pray the Word of God. This is where we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, this word that remains forever and is powerful, more powerful than seeing someone risen from the dead, this word that gives you a a sight, a beholding of the glory of God is the good news of Jesus Christ that has been preached to you. That's what Peter says. We need it in the Word of God. But do we even know what to look for? When we're reading this book or we're listening to someone preach, do we know what we, are, or that we, should, what we should be seeking to see, to behold? Do we, do we know what should be our goal in it? Our goal shouldn't be merely to check a box to say we've done it. Our goal shouldn't be to do our spiritual duty so that God would be impressed with us or so that others might think well of us our goal should not be to even always learn something new or to feel something exciting that's not the goal the goal of taking in this word is to behold the glory of god it's to see him whether we're being taught or reminded whether we're being corrected or renewed whether we're being encouraged and comforted or corrected and convicted our goal should be to behold the glory of the lord but here's the challenge what we read in the Bible is the revelation of the glory of God, but we don't always see it, do we? It is amazing. Everything in this book is absolutely, utterly amazing. More than anything you can see or experience in this world, it is amazing, and yet we are not always amazed. We can read it like, a, like, like it's a dictionary and be done. This book is a glorious book, but we don't always bow down and worship Him. So we need not only the light turned on, we need our eyes opened up, we need our heart stirred. Well, how does that happen? How do do we get to have that? It's only by God's sovereign goodness and His covenant kindness and His faithful, merciful grace. He has to both reveal and then enable us to see. He has to show us and then illuminate our eyes. So then do we just sit back and wait for God to do what He's going to do when He's going to do it, if He's going to do it? No. No, we pray. We beg. We plead. Show me your glory. We we plead with Him to do it, and then we pick up this book, and we listen, and we say, God, show me your glory. As I read and as I listen, we must pray, asking in faith and in fervency, pleading with God to show us His glory. Prayer and the Word go hand in hand. And I love what Moses does here in verses, 38, uh, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 34. He asks to see something, but God doesn't show him something. He just tells him something. And Moses doesn't say, oh man, I, I really wanted to see something. This is such a letdown. No, verse 8, he quickly bows his head toward the earth and he worships. That should be our response beholding the glory of God in this book. And then verse 9, he prays. He receives the word and he prays. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. All of this is old hat. We've already read all this. We've already heard this. What's new? And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Well, why does he add that in? Where does he get that from? God just proclaimed it to him. He's praying now the word he just heard. He's praying it back to God. Verse 6 and 7. God, he he is a God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, God, since you have just revealed your glory to me, I'm going to pray it back to you. Do what you say you do. Be who you say you are, what you've just showed me. So that's what we should do. We should pray before we read, before we listen. We should pray as we're reading and listening. We should be praying afterwards. And then we should take it up and read, and we should come and listen intently with faith and with faithfulness. That is, we must seek God in His Word carefully and prayerfully and consistently and passionately and do it all in faith, trusting that He will indeed show us His glory when we seek for Him with all of our heart. And the reason why we must do this with faith, why we must pray and seek God by faith, in part is because spiritual nourishment is different than physical nourishment. Oh, there are many similarities, but there is a difference. When you go this afternoon and you eat lunch, you might feel yourself getting full. You might even feel yourself being reinvigorated, re-energized and strengthened. It's not always the case when you read. When you feast upon this, there's not always a sensational uh, light bulb with confetti going off and saying, this is the glory of God. It doesn't always happen that way. So you read it in faith. You listen in faith. You pray and then you trust and you obey, and you wait. So whether your faith is weak, we can abide the difficulties of life, or the distractions of this world, the darkness all around or within, or whether your faith is strong, seek to renew your faith by beholding the glory of God in His Word. You now, I've said quite a bit about what we must do, what we should be doing, and how we should be doing it but we don't always do it. Like I'm saying things to some of you who may be feeling, yeah, that's right, that's what I've been doing. Praise God. But even you know that you don't always do it. And for many of you, you're hearing this and you're feeling convicted and you're feeling a weight on you. You're saying, I don't do that. How many days, how many weeks, how many months have gone by and you have not sought God in His Word? Maybe you haven't even read this Word. You're saying, what then? I've read it and I haven't been amazed. I saw glory and I said, eh. I didn't bow down in worship. I'm not, my faith doesn't feel like it's strengthened at all. You haven't been seeking him. You've been maybe taking his word and you say, you know what? I'll, I'll, take, I'll get into this after I get everything else done. Everything, this will revolve around everything else in my life, not the other way around. Beloved. This is not just foolish for you. It is wicked of you. This is sinful. When we go and we behold the glory of God and we don't bow down and worship Him. And So what do we need for that? I love it. We need this word. That God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations forgiving our iniquity and transgression and sin. But, this is what I didn't read earlier. It's important. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You say... Okay, if Moses or if we are seeking to have ourselves reassured because of our sinfulness and the the darkness and the difficulty and distractions of this world, God, we need your encouraging word like we have in the first part of verse 7. Not in the last part. That doesn't seem comforting. It doesn't seem reassuring. Besides that, it seems confusing. You say that you will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and then you say, but you you will by no means do that. So which is it? Do you forgive sin or don't you? Is it that you will clear the guilty or that you will never clear the guilty? God is not contradicting Himself here. He's speaking of two different things. No, not two different kinds of sin. Not two different kinds of forgiveness. Not two different kinds of guilt. He's speaking of two different kinds of people. You see, there are some who are guilty of sin and in desperate need of God's forgiveness by His grace. And there are others who are guilty of sin and in desperate need of God's forgiveness by His grace but they are in His covenant by faith. And so they receive it. That's the difference. One believes, one trusts Him in His Word, that He is gracious through His Son, Jesus Christ. Both all are sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness, but only those who focus their faith on Jesus, who He is and what He has done, only they receive it. you know it says that god just forgives their sin but god is a holy god he is a just god he's a wrathful god so how can he just forgive them how can he just clear the guilty well he doesn't he forgives those who are repentant turn towards him and faith because he was overlooking it until the day of christ he overlooked all the sins of all of his people who were repentant and turned to him in faith, trusting his mercy and his grace, that his glory is that he is a covenant, a God of covenant kindness. Knowing that the blood of rams and goats and bulls and lambs did nothing, but they pointed to the one who would be the true Lamb of God. That forgiveness would come by him, that God would pour out all of his anger and his justice and his judgment on Jesus instead of those who are trusting in him. So this morning, if that's you, I invite you to take your communion cup. And if it's not you, if you're not trusting in Jesus to be the one, the only one through whom God's forgiving grace comes to you, then this communion meal is not yet for you. Just, Just set it down if that's you. And afterwards, come and talk to me or put it on a connection card or talk to another Christian around you that you want to know more about what this means. But if you are trusting in Christ, that you know you have God's gracious forgiveness and His mercy, His covenant kindness through Christ, His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension and promised return, you take this wafer out that represents the broken body of Jesus for our sin. And give, give thanks and have faith that you indeed have been forgiven by His grace through faith in Him. In the same way, take the juice that represents the blood of Christ poured out for sinners. And be grateful and in faith. Take it asking Him to continue to help you to behold His glory in His grace in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you that you are more magnificent than we could possibly know. More than we can ever see. And yet you've given us more in your word than we can ever really fully grasp. There is beauty. There is wonder. There is glory. The glory of you in your grace, in your wonder in this book. Would you show us? And open our eyes to see it. What if our hearts are hard or dull, Would you melt our hard hearts, soften us and awaken us to see you. That by it we may be encouraged and strengthened, that we may trust you and have that faith to bow down to you and worship joyfully, to call out to you earnestly, to live with peace and hope and to obey you faithfully. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Savior, our only hope of receiving the full glory of God's sovereign goodness, covenant kindness. And faithful, merciful grace. It's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen.